Hello, my zebras and spoonies. Thanks for coming and hanging out with me today. I'm glad that you are here. Today, we're going to be talking about bicarbonate. Because when you have a chronic illness, it isn't uncommon to have problems with electrolyte imbalances. Because of that, I have been doing a series that talks about what they are, how the body uses them, and things that we can do to manage our electrolytes. And this is the final installment of that series. I left the most complicated entry for last. So let me preface this discussion of bicarbonate with the fact that it is an intricate part of the acid-base balance, which is often considered the most difficult concept to master for medical surgical nurses. Bicarbonate is complex, and it is difficult to talk about its function in the body in a simple or straightforward manner. I'm going to do my best to talk about it here without going fully into the acid-base balance of the body. That being said, there is no way to discuss bicarbonate's function with the body without also discussing at least the metabolic side of the acid-base balance. Bicarbonate is an essential component of the physiological pH buffering system in the human body. Up to three-fourths of carbon dioxide in the human body is converted to carbonic acid, which is quickly turned into bicarbonate. Bicarbonate is alkali, so it helps to keep the acid-base balance of the body stable. Bicarbonate alongside water, hydrogen, hemoglobin, phosphate, and carbon dioxide makes up the buffering system, which is required to act quickly if the pH changes are detected. This could be caused by an electrolyte imbalance or the inability to remove carbon dioxide, which is a waste product, from the body. If bicarbonate levels are too high or too low, then this can suggest that the body is struggling to maintain its acid-base buffering system. A normal level of bicarbonate is 19 to 24. The normal pH of the blood is a narrow range of 7.35 to 7.45, and it becomes dangerous if it is above or below that range. Normally, the body will compensate when the pH of the blood moves outside of the range, so the pH is quickly corrected and it's returned to that good, safe range. So let's talk about metabolic acidosis. Metabolic acidosis is a condition in which there is too much acid, or not enough base, in the body fluids. Bicarbonate is the body's primary base. Thus, under normal conditions, when the pH becomes acidic or it drops below 7.35, the body will convert carbonic acid to bicarbonate and will have the kidneys reabsorb bicarbonate. This increase in bicarbonate will return the pH to the normal range. Thus, acidosis is always a condition of too much acid as well as too little base. If you don't have enough bicarbonate in your body, your pH will shift towards being acidic or less than that 7.35. If the bicarbonate level drops below 19, that's when it can start to affect the pH of the blood. The kidney plays a major role in the regulation of the acid-base balance by reabsorbing bicarbonate and excreting the titratable acids and ammonia into the urine. 
when someone suffers kidney disease, their kidneys are not performing these functions as well, which can lead to an acid-base imbalance. If the kidneys are failing to reabsorb that bicarbonate, the levels of bicarbonate in the blood can decrease, leading to metabolic acidosis. Likewise, if the kidneys are not able to excrete that acid and ammonia in the urine, the amount of acid in the blood can rise and can cause metabolic acidosis. The symptoms of metabolic acidosis are a fast heart rate, weakness, feeling tired, the need to take long, deep breaths, headache, confusion, loss of appetite, nausea, and vomiting. Many medications can have an impact on the acid-base balance of the body and should be monitored with regular lab work to ensure that this balance is being maintained. Medicines that may lower your bicarbonate levels include methicillin, nitrofurantin, tetracycline, thiazide diuretics, and tyroteramine. Probably not saying those medications all correctly. Uh, drugs have been linked to lactic acidosis as well. And those medications include metformin, uh, lyozolidide, propofol, intravenous epinephrine, inhaled beta antagonists such as albuterol, and nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors or NRTIs, which are HIV medications. And I'm sure I didn't say all those medications right either. All right, so then let's talk about metabolic alkalosis. Metabolic alkalosis is an imbalance where the pH of the blood has become too alkaline, or it's greater than 7.45. This can be caused by an increase in the base, or the bicarbonate is greater than 24, or it can be caused by a decrease in the amount of acid in the body. It can occur in a variety of conditions. It may be, be due to digestive issues like repeated vomiting that disrupt the blood's acid-base balance. It can also be due to complications of conditions that affect the heart, liver, and kidneys. In many cases, you might not experience symptoms, but severe forms of metabolic alkalosis can affect kidney functioning. Medical conditions that can cause metabolic alkalosis include cystic fibrosis, dehydration, electrolyte imbalances, which affect levels of sodium, chloride, potassium, and other electrolytes. And the key electrolyte in this would be low levels of chloride in the blood or hypochloremia. High levels of adrenal hormone aldosterone or hypoaldosteronism. Uh, recurrent vomiting, which occurs with cyclic vomiting syndrome, gastroparesis, migraines, and many other disorders, all can cause metabolic al alkalosis. There are also medications that can raise your bicarbonate levels. And those include fluodorcortisone, barbiturates, bicarbonates, uh, hydrocortisones, loop diuretics, and steroids. The metabolic alkalosis symptoms include irritability, muscle twitching, muscle cramps, muscle spasms, fatigue, confusion, tremor, tingling, numbness, arrhythmias, seizures, and if severe enough, it can lead into a coma. All right, now for my brief two cents on bicarbonate supplements. 
If you have any degree of acid-base imbalance or suspect that you do, you need to be seen and followed by your doctor. An acid-base imbalance can quickly become life-threatening and isn't something that you should ever try to self-manage. So, no supplement advice here. Go see your doctor and follow their directions. Seriously, you do not want to mess around with this one. All right, so now let's talk about diet and metabolic acidosis. When you're considering diet as a means to prevent metabolic acidosis, what you're really looking at is having a kidney supportive diet. This is a diet that reduces the kidney's workload, which makes it less likely that your body will have a metabolic imbalance due to kidney dysfunction. This type of kidney supportive diet is generally only needed when a person is already experiencing kidney disease. The most recommended kidney supportive diet is the DASH diet. So DASH stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. The DASH diet is a healthy eating plan designed to help treat or prevent high blood pressure or hypertension. However, there's been a lot of research on this diet, and that research has shown that this kind of diet is also more gentle to the kidneys and can facilitate better kidney function. The National Kidney Foundation recommends this diet to reduce your risk of going into metabolic acidosis when you have chronic kidney disease. When following the DASH diet, it is important to choose foods that are rich in potassium, calcium, magnesium, fiber, and protein. You're looking for foods low in saturated fat and foods that are low in sodium. The DASH diet provides daily and weekly nutritional goals. The number of servings you should have depends on your daily uh, calorie needs, but let's take a look at the recommended servings from each food group for 2,000 calorie a day DASH diet. Since 2,000 calories a day is in general the recommendation for an adult. So you're looking at six to eight servings a day for the grains, and one serving is one slice of bread, one ounce of dry cereal, half a cup of cooked cereal, rice, or pasta. You're looking at four or five servings a day of vegetables, with one serving uh, one cup of raw leafy green vegetable and half a cup of cut up raw or cooked vegetables, or half a cup of vegetable juice. You're looking at four or five servings a day of fruits. One serving is one medium fruit, half a cup of fresh frozen or canned fruit, or half a cup of fruit juice. Then you're looking at two to three two or three servings a day of your fat-free or low-fat dairy products. And one serving is one cup of milk or yogurt or one and a half ounces of cheese. Then you're looking at six one-ounce servings or fewer a day for lean meats, poultry, and fish. One serving is one ounce cooked meat, poultry, or, poultry or fish, and one egg. You're also looking at four to five servings a week of nuts, seeds, and legumes. One serving is a third a cup nuts, two tablespoons of peanut butter, two tablespoons of seeds, or half a cup of cooked legumes, such as dried beans or peas. 
you're looking at two to three servings a day of your fats and oils. One serving is a teaspoon of soft margarine, a teaspoon of vegetable oil, a tablespoon of mayonnaise, or two tablespoons of salad dressing. Sweets and added sugars, you're looking at five servings or fewer in a week. One serving is a tablespoon of sugar, jelly, or jam, half a cup of sorbet, one cup of lemonade. When following the DASH diet, there is a major focus on reducing the amount of salt consumed. Just by following the above serving recommendations, you will reduce your sodium intake. You can further reduce your sodium by not adding salt to your food when you're cooking or by adding it at the table. Um, buying low sodium versions of foods will also help to reduce your salt intake. So another common or fairly common um, renal diet is the potential renal acid load diet or the PRAL diet. Um, you can choose a diet that focuses on the potential renal acid loads or the PRAL of food. Uh, every food has to be broken down by the body. And in that process, it either produces acidic or alkaline byproducts. A few produce neutral byproducts, but most foods will sway our acid-base balance in one direction or the other. When we introduce more acid into our system, our kidneys have to compensate by increasing the amounts of bicarbonate it reabsorbs and by excreting more acid. Thus, decreasing consumptions of food that increase your body's acid will decrease your kidney's workload and make it less likely that you will go into metabolic acidosis. So average potential renal acid loads, or the PRL, of certain food groups, and that's in 100 grams of an edible portion. So fruits and fruit juices are at like negative 3.1 PRAL. Vegetables are at a negative 2.8 Fats and oils are the only food category that is a zero. They do not add or subtract on your, your acid level. Milk and whey-based products are plus one. Bread is plus 3.5. Noodles such as spaghetti are plus 6.7. Fish is plus 7.9. Cheeses are plus eight. Meat and meat products are plus 9.5. Thus, on this kind of diet, the primary source of calories will be from fruits, vegetable, and fat sources since they do not increase the acid in the body. The secondary calorie sources will be from milk products and breads since they have a low impact on the acid in the body. While following this diet, it is essential to ensure that you're still getting enough proteins. While protein is broken down into acid, it is still an essential nutrient for the body. Going on to a PRAL diet is much more complex to keep track of and much more difficult to ensure that all your dietary needs are being met. And this is the biggest reason that it is not the most recommended diet for kidney support and why more providers recommend the DASH diet because it is much easier to follow than the PRAL diet. However, it is one that science has good evidence for. There's a lot of research showing that the Prawl diet is really good to your kidneys. 
If you think that this might be a good diet for you, consider seeing a dietitian to help you get started out on it to make sure that you're getting all the things that you need. And keep in mind that there are other kidney support diets. There are a lot of them. There are many other diets out there that are designed to support the kidneys, but most of them are for specific disease processes and are not required unless you have that specific disease. An example of this is a renal dialysis diet. Um, if you're not receiving dialysis, you don't need this kind of diet. If you are at risk for metabolic acidosis because you have kidney disease or you have had metabolic acidosis in the past, you may benefit from talking to a dietitian about the ways that you can modify your diet to better support your kidneys and prevent future episodes of metabolic acidosis. All right, so let's talk about diet and metabolic alkalosis. Let's start by talking about chloride-responsive alkalosis. If you have only a mild chloride-responsive alkalosis, you may only need to make an adjustment in your diet, such as increasing your intake of salt or sodium chloride. The chloride ions will make your blood more acidic and reduce the alkalosis. I have a whole other podcast about chloride that covers supplementing chloride, so I won't go over that again here. You can go to my list of podcasts and you can listen to the podcast on chloride if you would like to know more about supplementing chloride. But in the context of chloride-responsive alkalosis, you can have metabolic alkalosis because your chloride level is too low and increasing your chloride level may be all that's required to correct the acid-base imbalance. That means that making sure you're getting enough chloride in your diet will be a way for you to prevent getting metabolic alkalosis in the future. That being said, Chloride can help shift your acid-base balance, even if it wasn't the cause of the imbalance. Supplementing or getting more chloride in your diet can be one way to increase the acid in your body. You just have to monitor your levels to be sure that you're not taking in too much chloride. Next up is potassium-responsive alkalosis. Just like a low chloride can lead to metabolic alkalosis, so can a low potassium. Unlike chloride, potassium is not used as a treatment unless your levels are actually low. I also have a post about potassium, so I'm not going to review the supplementation of potassium here. If you want to know more about the supplementation of potassium, you can look at my podcast list and you can listen to the podcast about potassium for that information. So the biggest piece for managing alkalosis, metabolic alkalosis specifically in your diet, is managing nausea. Vomiting is the most common cause of metabolic alkalosis. The gastric juices have a high content of hydrochloric acid, which is a strong acid. Its loss causes an increase in the alkalinity of the blood. The vomiting can result from any number of stomach disorders. By figuring out and treating the cause of the vomiting, your doctor can cure the metabolic alkalosis. However, many of these stomach conditions are chronic. And well, <laughs> that means that managing your nausea is going to be chronic too. 
but there are dietary management strategies that can help with your nausea. Keep in mind that these are general guides and speaking to your doctor is a good idea if you suffer from chronic nausea and vomiting. Don't force yourself to eat or drink if you're nauseated and vomiting. It is a good idea to avoid eating for about four to eight hours if you're vomiting often. Along the way, try small sips of water. After your stomach settled down a bit, begin to replace some of the chemicals and fluids that you might have lost because of the vomiting. Try sipping chicken or vegetable broth, a sports drink, or small bites of gelatin like jello. These will help keep you hydrated. Don't rely on clear liquids for more than two days in a row. They do not have enough nutrients. If you cannot tolerate more than a clear liquid diet after two days, it is time to go see your doctor. You may find that the odor of food triggers your symptoms of nausea and vomiting. And you might want to ask a friend, spouse, or partner to cook for you while you leave the house so you don't have to smell the food cooking. Staying out of the kitchen can help since it is so closely associated with foods and smells. Order takeout if possible. You can also try eating food from sealed containers so that you can't smell them prior to actually eating them. You also might find that your food likes and dislikes change from day to day. Try new things until you find something that you can tolerate. It's also good to try to drink eight or more cups of liquid each day if you can. See if you can drink another half cup of liquids for each time that you vomit. Yes, I know that is a lot of fluid for an upset stomach, but that's really the goal that you're aiming for. Keep in mind that you don't need to drink it all at once. Sipping is a much better plan. So when and how to eat if you're nauseated. Eat small meals frequently. If you feel sick to your stomach between meals, try to eat six to eight small meals during the day with a snack at bedtime. Spreading out your food throughout the day will make it less burden on your stomach and make it less likely that you'll become nauseous or outright vomit. Eat cold or at room temperature. Do not eat hot foods. This is to reduce the smell and the tastes of foods which become more pronounced when they're hot. Don't eat in a warm room. The air can become stuffy and stale and it can make your stomach feel worse. Rinse your mouth with warm water before and after meals. This helps get rid of any bad tastes in your mouth and thus makes it less likely that you will have nausea. Sit up or lie back with your head raised for at least an hour after eating if you need to rest. Keeping your head up helps reduce nausea. So what kind of food should you eat if you're nauseated? Eat poultry or soy. Try turkey, chicken, or soy foods if you find you suddenly don't like red meat because this can be a common trigger for nausea and vomiting. Eat dry foods such as crackers, toast, dry cereals, or breadsticks when you wake up and every few hours during the day. They provide nutrients and they can help settle your stomach. Eat cool foods instead of hot, spicy foods. Consider non-fat yogurt, Fruit juice, uh, sherbet, sports drinks, spicy foods may upset your stomach even more. 
Don't eat foods that are very sweet, very greasy, or fried. They may upset your stomach even more. Consider baked, boiled, or mashed potatoes, rice, cream soups made with low-fat milk, fruit-flavored gelatin, pretzels, or low-fat puddings. Try bland, soft, easy-to-digest foods on days when you're having a flare. A poached egg on dry toast or a poached chicken breast with plain noodles are pretty good options. And baby foods can also be a good choice. Being pureed makes foods easier to digest and thus are less likely to irritate the stomach. And you don't have to buy baby foods. You can use a food processor to make your own. Eat foods that don't have a strong smell. Smells are a seriously strong trigger for nausea. Diet is often not enough to control nausea and vomiting when you have a chronic stomach condition. It is essential that you treat the stomach condition itself. And you may also need medications to treat the nausea and vomiting. Remember that your PCP or your primary care provider really will be your best ally when managing an acid-base imbalance or when trying to reduce the risk of one. They will be the person that's going to be ordering your monitoring lab work to make sure that your diet changes or supplementation is meeting your goals. They will also be the ones that will help you make sure that you are taking the right amount of your supplement. Not to mention that it is most likely going to be your PCP who is helping you manage those underlying conditions that is causing you to have the risk for an acid-base balance to start with. It is also possible that your supplements could interact with your medications that you're taking. Your PCP and your pharmacist are your best allies for monitoring for these possible interactions. So it is super important to keep your doctor in the loop whenever you're adding any kind of supplement into your diet, whenever you're changing your diet plan, so that they can help you through this very difficult, convoluted process, especially when we're talking about something as complicated as bicarbonate. So that's the conclusion of the electrolyte series, and it's probably the longest installment in it. I hope that you have found some useful information in these uh, podcasts. I plan on doing more series of articles in the future. I have yet to decide on the topic for the next series, but I'm most likely going to keep it on Wednesday as the day for the series. Any topics you'd like to see on a series? Uh, let me know in the comments. As always, thank you for coming and hanging out with me. And until we talk again, I hope that you stay well.